Thank you for listening to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. This is Real Sports Talk for the Real Sports Fan. And I definitely appreciate you, Real Sports fans, who are listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do me a huge favor and leave this podcast a five-star rating. That one, two, three, four, fifth, that five-star rating review will definitely be appreciated. If you're listening on any other platform, that could be Google Podcasts, Podomatic, iHeartRadio, wherever, please share from that platform so that your friends and family can find the podcast, listen to the podcast, Love the podcast, subscribe, and then share with their friends and family. I'm trying to get this podcast to the highest levels of podcastivity, and I need your help to get there. I would truly, truly appreciate it. We have a very big episode today. It's just me and you chopping it up on this episode. A lot of boxing to get into, big boxing weekend this past weekend. Of course, a lot of basketball to get into, but we got to start with the king of American sports, football, the NFL. As we had a big trade go down, Aaron Rodgers is finally a New York Jet. Now, we knew this was going to happen, but it just took a very long time for the Packers and Jets to agree to terms. And they both put themselves in a position where they couldn't go back, really. Right? There was no way for them to put the toothpaste back in the tube, as people would say. Uh, The way I described it is that they already cooked all the food. All the food is set. They put it out on the dinner table. And they were scared to eat. They were waiting for one person to get there and let the food get cold, basically, with how long this took for this trade to happen. Now, the official details of the trade, of course, the Jets get Aaron Rodgers. They also get a 2023 first-round pick, so on Thursday, the 15th pick of the draft, along with a fifth-round choice in this year's draft. The Jets, they get the 13th overall pick, which was the Packers, so they go from 15 to 13, which... Could be important for them depending on who they want. They also get the number 42 pick in the second round this year and the number 207 pick this year, along with a conditional second round pick next year that turns into a first round pick if Aaron Rodgers plays at least 65% of the snaps this season. Now, I get why they wanted to put that in there because you are dealing with a quarterback who is going to be 40 years old going into the season, Aaron Rodgers. And when you're 40 years old playing a sport like football, there is going to be a higher, there's a higher chance of you getting hurt. And the thing that really just throws me off about this is that the Jets not one time did they think about trying to get Lamar Jackson. And a shout out to my guy, Chris Negron, from the MMA Archive and the Sideline Guys with OTS Media. He's a Baltimore Ravens fan, and he's been saying for a while, the reason you haven't heard anything about offers for Lamar is that other teams know that they're going to match the offer. Whatever a team offers, the Ravens have the chance to match it because they do have him under their franchise tag. They have the rights to him. But my thing is... No one even thought to maybe test what the Ravens are willing to do to match it. Now, one team was like, all right, let's see if we can call their bluff. Let's offer from, you know, 240 and 190 million guaranteed and see if the Ravens do match it. There's no harm in the reach out, especially if you're a team that needs a quarterback. Now, if you're a team that's not sure about your quarterback and You don't want to hurt that quarterback's feelings, which, again, these are all grown men in a cutthroat business. They should be prepared for that. But if you don't want to hurt your quarterback's feelings, I get not offering to Lamar Jackson because then your quarterback might think, "Okay, I'm a second choice or I'm just a guy they're stuck with, not the guy they truly want. So if you have one of those type of quarterbacks, okay, I can see. But there's so many teams that are going to be looking for quarterbacks in this draft that know that their quarterback right now that they have is just a bridge guy. And still no one wanted to give up what the Jets gave up for Aaron Rodgers, who's a 40-year-old quarterback coming off of a down year, who is very eccentric, who some people may say is a selfish teammate because this past season he didn't want to do any off-season work. 
And the thing is, by this point in his career, Aaron Rodgers probably feels that he doesn't need to do off-season work. He's been playing football his whole life. He's got all these years banked in of experience. And he's like, okay, I don't need to do all this off-season work. But when you have new receivers like he had last year for the Packers, you may want to build a chemistry with them because not everyone's slant is exactly the same. Not everyone's fade route is exactly the same. Not everybody's crossing route is exactly the same. So you might want to get in and do that work. But Aaron Rodgers, he didn't want to do that with the young wide receivers. Now he gets to the Jets. Now they brought along some wide receivers and some weapons that he's used to, like Lazard. But also have young receivers, young running backs, young tight ends. That he has to work with, he has to build a chemistry with. Is he willing to do that? I know who would be willing to do that because they're only 26 years old, Lamar Jackson. And again, if you're in a position where you're looking for a quarterback, the Jets, we know that you're looking for a quarterback. And you were just dead set on Aaron Rodgers? Why not just throw it out there? Hey, Lamar, call Lamar up. Two, 240, 190 guaranteed. What do you say? If he says yes, then see if the Ravens will match it. If they match it, cool. No harm, no foul. You go back to Aaron Rodgers. But the fact that 31 other teams out there don't want to take a chance on getting a top 10 quarterback and Lamar Jackson, who's 26 years old, something smells funny, man. Something smells funny. There's something fishy out there. There's no way you're looking at the situation and not at least giving it a side eye of like what's really going on. Uh, but back to the Jets and the Packers. The Jets had a very talented team last year that was held back by the quarterback, right? The combination of Joe Flacco and Mike White and Zach Wilson all were trash. Booty cheeks, toilet paper, all sucked, right? Aaron Rodgers is definitely an upgrade. Even at 40 years old, he's better than those guys. But he's a quick solution. He's giving you one, two years max, and then you're right back where you started. So if they don't win the Super Bowl this year or next year, it's a failure. And in the AFC, it's no guarantee. I still don't think they're the best team in their division. That's still Buffalo. They still got to deal with the Patriots, who you know are going to be well coached and are most likely going to make a lot of adjustments from last year to this year. In the AFC as a whole, you still got to deal with, you got the L.A. Chargers coming, Jacksonville coming. That team, Kansas City, who won the Super Bowl, is still there. Cincinnati is still there. Miami, if Tua stays healthy, is still there. So there's no guarantee with Aaron Rodgers that you're going to win a division, let alone win a Super Bowl or win the AFC. They got to make the playoffs. And again, they'll definitely have a better chance for Aaron Rodgers than any of the quarterbacks they had last season. But why not try to get a guy who could be your quarterback for the next 10 years? If Lamar Jackson comes in and continues on that same trajectory that he's been on, he could be a Hall of Famer for the Jets. No matter what Aaron Rodgers does, he's going to be a Green Bay Packer. He's going to be playing the Jets, you know, for the Jets this year in that uniform. But as far as his legacy... He's going to be a Green Bay Packer. And the only thing that would make it worth it for what you gave up is a Super Bowl. Because essentially you gave up two first round picks, a second round pick, along with other late round picks. And no telling what those picks can turn into. So you just never know, man. You never know. And why not take the chance on a younger, at this point right now, better quarterback in Lamar Jackson. I really just don't get the lack of motivation to give Lamar Jackson a chance. Now, for the Packers side of it, I like what they got back, for sure. And you always want to... The fact that you can get off of a 40-year-old quarterback and get basically two first-round picks and a second 
and you get an immediate return, a first and a second this year, that's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, so you definitely love that for the Packers. And they have to take advantage and make the right picks and groom those picks into good players. I think that's a part of drafting that gets forgotten is that you have to develop these players. Very, very rarely are they going to come in and be ready to be a pro bowler right away. That's very rare, right? Very rare do you have a guy coming in rookie season outside of, you know, your dynamic running backs and be ready to take off that rookie year to be a pro bowler or a franchise guy. And the Packers have to take advantage of the picks they have. Hopefully Jordan Love has developed into a starting quality quarterback. From what we've seen so far, he has not been that. So for Packers fans, they have to hope that what they haven't seen has been better than what they have seen. And then that comes out this season. But he'll definitely have a year to prove it. And if he's not that guy, maybe he can use one of those first-round picks next year to get that guy. So this is definitely, for the Packers fans, it can be a transition period, but not a rebuilding period, depending on how good Jordan Love is. So I like the trade from the Packers standpoint. I love what they were able to get back. From the Jets standpoint, it's very, very risky. Very, very risky what you are putting a lot on a 40-year-old quarterback's shoulders to try to get a squad to the Super Bowl. And you got to hope that the defense is just as good as it was last year. A lot of times defenses can go up and down from year to year because teams adjust Players get hurt. So many things go into it. So if that defense isn't as good, is it going to work out? Can you depend on Aaron Rodgers to win if the defense is middle of the road? If it's the 17th best defense, is Aaron Rodgers good enough to make you a playoff team with that defense instead of a top 10 or top 5 defense like they were last year? So many things go into it. Can't wait for the football season. Can't wait for the draft. And if you're listening to this before Wednesday night, make sure you tune in to Rush Hour with me and Nikki Jess. We're going to be doing our mock draft tomorrow night. I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon. A little late. I apologize for that. But we'll be doing that with George T, former Dallas Cowboys safety, joining us tomorrow. All right. So we're going to get into some more sports, boxing, basketball, all that good stuff. So we're going to take our first music break when we come back. Got to talk Javante Davis, Ryan Garcia, and all the things surrounding that match and going forward. We'll be right back.
that music break so now let's get into a little boxing we had a big boxing weekend of course the main event the main headline the main card was Shavante Davis versus Ryan Garcia but we also had a different card that went on earlier that day took place over in London that was headlined by Joe Cardina going against Rakamov now the reason I'm just saying his last name is that his first name it's very hard to pronounce. I'm going to spell it for you uh, just to see if you can give a chance at pronouncing it. It's S-H-A-V-K-A-T-D-Z-H-O-N. Now, his last name is R-A-K-H-I-M-O-V. So, Rakimov was the IBF Super Featherweight Champion. So, this is 130 pounds. And he was going against Joe Cardina. Joe Cardina lost his title due to injury. And Rockamoff was able to get that title during the time Joe Cardina was out. Now, Cardina came back, of course, saying he wanted his title back. And that's what he did. He won the title in this matchup. Very good fight. Uh, Rockamoff is not as skilled as Joe Cardina, but was able to close the gap with just being relentless. And never stopping. Constant pressure. Right? Always stayed in the pocket. And once he got there, he was going to let his hands go. And Cardina was able to outskill him. Use great footwork. I love the way that he would pivot and get at different angles to land punches against Rockamoff, and it lets him get in a decision victory. Now, Cordina, because this is his second time winning the title and he's never lost, he is undefeated, I think it's time for him to move on to try to get some unification matches, try to really make a big name for himself. Now, 130 pounds, the other champions, you have Emmanuel Navarrete, who's a very good champion. Was very was challenged a lot in his last fight unexpectedly, but was able to pull out the victory. You also have Oshaki Foster, who's a new champion in the division as well, and Hector Luis Garcia, who last fought in January when he lost to Javante Tank Davis. So Joe Cardina should pick one of those champions and try to make a unification bout and really try to see if he can become undisputed at 130. Uh, I don't know if he wants to move up in the future or not, but... He could become one of those guys at 135 to join that fray of just talented individuals at 135 and 140. But right now, because Shakur Stevenson is no longer at 130, that division's kind of wide open for a guy that's trying to take the helm and take it by the horns. I think Joe Cardina is talented enough to do that. So now let's get to the main card. Javante Davis versus Ryan Garcia. It was a pretty good undercard as well. Uh, some people were expecting it to be underwhelming for the undercard, but it was pretty good. Uh, the first fight we had Kevin Salgado versus Elijah Garcia. Elijah Garcia was able to win by decision. Pretty much dominated from the fourth round on. He started off slow because he was trying to fight Salgado's fight pretty much. He was in the pocket going back and forth exchanging. And once he moved away a little bit, used his range and started to box... That's when you really saw the change in him take over. 
And for him to only be 19 years old, now 20, I believe his birthday just came up. For him to be 20 years old and to be that poised and that in control throughout the fight and not panic when things weren't going his way really shows a high level of maturity from him. So I really like that. He's now 16-0 and he's right outside the top 10 when it comes to most rankings at middleweight. And the middleweight division right now is looking... I guess we're looking for someone to become the guy there, right? The middleweight division throughout the years has been one of the pride divisions of boxing, right? You think about a time when Bernard Hopkins was in middleweight and Triple G was in his prime. And you had him and Canelo at middleweight going at it. Even in past years before that, the middleweight division has always had talent. And right now, the middleweight division is looking for that guy to come in and really take over because Triple G is on his way out of boxing, he's getting older. I can see Jamal Charlo moving up to 168 pretty soon. So you don't have that person at 160 that you point to and say, oh, that guy is the special one, right? Uh, Aris Landalar is a champion at 160, he's older. Uh, Carlos Adamas maybe is that guy who can take over at 160. Um, you also have Zanabek at 160 as well. But maybe it's a young guy like Elijah Garcia who can come through and become that dude. Now, he still has some work to do. I can see him maybe taking on a Shane Mosley Jr. or Chris Eubank Jr., maybe a Sergey Devonchenko, someone in that realm to where he can take on better competition and prove that he's a top 10 middleweight and gradually work his way up to become a champion one day. But he still has time, very young, and I love where he's going. For the second fight, we had Bektamir Melakuziev take on Gabe Rosado. Now, Bektamir is known as Bek the Bully. He was upset by Gabe Rosado in 2021. It was a knockout of the year. No one expected it. Uh, Bek was too eager and overzealous and attacked too hard. And Gabe Rosado caught him with a perfect right hand, knocked him out cold. So since then... Beck has been on a winning streak and trying to get himself back into just that trajectory of being a champion. While Gabe Rosado has been on the losing end of some fights, obviously coming towards the end of his career here. And Beck just wanted to get revenge. He wanted to prove that he is better than Gabe Rosado, and that's what he did in this fight. It was a pretty easy-to-call victory. And it was one where you could tell that Beck was very cautious of running in and getting that right hand, while Gabe Rosado tried to get that too much. He was too dependent on, oh, maybe I can knock him out again. When Gabe Rosado, that's not his game, right? If he gets a knockout, cool, but that's not his game. His game is to be relentless, continue to throw punches, and just be super tough, which he was. He didn't get knocked out by Beck the Bully, who has amazing power, but Beck showed a growth in this fight. He showed that he has matured from that loss he suffered a couple years ago. And now you see him with a complete game, being able to stay behind his jab if he wants to. Push to the body, go to the head. He doesn't throw combinations as often as I would like, but he does throw them very well when he decides to let his hands go. I like that about Beck the Bully. Now, this is what I see happening with Beck the Bully. Beck the Bully is at 168. And on the zone, Edgar Berlanga is at 168. And now on the zone... And I can see those two being matched up. And it's like bully versus bully. Two guys who are known for knocking dudes out. I do believe that Beck the Bully is a lot more skilled than Edgar Berlanga. Edgar Berlanga has been a lot of hype. He's been a hype job. And when he's going against better competition, has not lived up to that hype. But we're going to see what happens with Berlanga now at Matchroom. I wonder if they're going to announce something soon with him. He is somebody who can move the needle as far as selling tickets because of being him being from New York and him being Puerto Rican. He's able to get that support. And with Beck the Bully, he's going to start really making a name for himself if he continues to knock people out in a way that he's capable of. Uh, so I can see that being built up maybe early next year for a big fight there. For the co-main event, we had David Morrell, who is a somewhat... Title holder at 168, even though Canelo's undisputed, he has a WBA regular title, which I hate all the championships, but he does have a title belt at 168. Uh, he took on Yamaguchi Falco and destroyed him. 
destroy him. David Morrell just walked through him. The power was way too much, and Falco was out in the first round. And it was even a, it was one of those knockouts where referee saw it immediately. It was like, yo, come in. There's no need to count. Bringing the medical attention, right? David Morrell is special. He definitely has a lot of talent. And he called out David Benavidez. That's a good fight. It is. If Canelo decides to take on Dimitri Boval in September, then I can see Morrell versus Benavidez. Now, if Canelo says I'm going to I'm going to defend my 168-pound titles against David Benavidez, then Morrell has to go in a different direction. And these are some of the options he can go with. Demetrius Andrade. I know I say his name a lot, right? But he's somebody who is undefeated, very skilled, very unique in the way he fights, and maybe that's why he doesn't get the big-time fights. Not saying that people are ducking him, but I'm saying that people are going to be more willing to take on those other options that aren't as unorthodox as Andrade. But I think that Demetrius Andrade versus Dave Morrell will be a very good fight. Caleb Plant. That's a good fight that's right there. Plant says he still wants to take on the best of the best. That would be a very good fight for both fighters to try to establish themselves at 168. So there's some good options there for him. You also have other options like maybe if you know Jamal, Jamal Charlo, excuse me, moves up to 168. So Dave Morrell has a lot of options. He hasn't fought that many guys. So it's not like he's run out of options. But because he has moved up the ladder so fast, I can see him taking on Dave Benavidez next. Now for the main event, Javante Davis, Ryan Garcia at a catch weight of 136 pounds. So that means no titles on the line, just mano y mano, who's the best man, right? And this is great for boxing, right? And I feel like the reason that we got this fight is that there were less hands in it that, than normal, right? When you have two fighters of this caliber, Normally, there's the platforms, there's the managers, there's the sectioning bodies, and they're all trying to get a piece of it. With this one being at a catch weight with no tiles on the line, no sanctioning bodies. So you don't have to worry about the WBO or WBC or IBF trying to have a mandatory or trying to get their guy in. That part of it is out. So now you just have... PBC, Premier Boxing Champions, negotiating with Golden Boy Promotions and Oscar De La Hoya to try to make this happen. And because Javante Davis is the A-side, right, he's the one who has been proven to move the needle as far as selling tickets and selling pay-per-views, he has control of negotiations, right? He's the one saying, you want to fight me, so you have to get down to 136. You want to fight me, so now you also have to have a rehydration clause where you can't gain more than 10 pounds when you rehydrate. Now, from what I hear, they split the pay-per-view money 50-50 and the gate 50-50, right? Along with the guaranteed money they were going to get. So Ryan Garcia, if you're getting that, you're more than willing to deal with the other stipulations that are put in by Javante Davis. And before we get to the fight itself, this is so big for boxing that this happened. I just mentioned earlier how the sanctioning bodies weren't involved. And some people have pointed to that maybe being a bad thing. Because now a fighter like Javante Davis or Ryan Garcia can point to how many tickets they've sold. Or how many pay-per-views they've sold. Which the pay-per-view numbers haven't come out yet. Been estimated around 800,000. Which is amazing for today's day and age. You know, that's right around what uh, Canelo did against Caleb Plant right around what Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury did. So that's very good numbers. And also, it was reported that they got $10 million from the tickets sold in the arena itself, which is amazing. So big numbers, big money made from this fight, which is awesome because it means that other fighters don't have excuses. So when we have the big-time fights that don't happen because they say we don't have enough money for both of these fighters to make it happen, that's not true. Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford, you have enough money between the gate that you're going to get from in the arena, pay-per-view sales, and all the ads and everything else that you can do to get money. You're going to make enough money to pay these guys and make your money as far as the managers and the platforms and everything else. There's definitely enough money to go around to make these fights happen. 
And Ryan Garcia and Javante Davis proved that. Now for the fight itself. The first round was very boring. Nothing much happened. I gave it to Garcia. Second round, Ryan Garcia comes out and is very aggressive. And at first I was like, okay, I like it. Because one of my keys going into the fight was you cannot show Javante Davis the same thing. If you show him the same thing, he's going to download the data very quickly and make you pay for it. Now, Ryan Garcia came out, was aggressive, had Tank against the ropes, hit him with a couple of good shots, and he looked like even Tank might have been a little stunned. But Tank was able to regather himself and get all his wits about him and was able to catch Ryan Garcia with a nasty left-hand counter shot as Ryan Garcia missed his left hook. They missed it wildly. And one thing that I noticed throughout the whole fight, and especially in that sequence where Ryan Garcia got knocked down by that counter left hand, Ryan Garcia didn't think about the footwork aspect of this fight. So Javante Davis is a southpaw, left-handed, going against Ryan Garcia, who's orthodox right-handed, which means that they're going to be standing where their feet are going to be pointed right at each other. They're not going to have that normal space that you have when you have a right-hander versus a right-hander or a left-hander versus a left-hander. They're going to have times where they might step on each other's feet or their feet might become tangled because they're fighting for the same location. Now, for most of the fight, they were fighting at a distance where they didn't have to worry about that. But once you got in close, you want to have the outside leverage so you have room to escape on the outside. If you come in too close and your opponent has outside leverage of defeat, you don't have anywhere to escape. And that's what we saw in the second round. So Ryan Garcia misses with the left hook, which he threw too wildly and too wide. You can't telegraph your punch like that against Javante Davis. Throws it, and because he's on the inside and doesn't have that outside leverage of defeat, once he missed it, he had nowhere to go. And he's not quick enough to escape to his right and dodge the left hand of Javante Davis. So once he was there, he was stuck and didn't get his hands up fast enough, got stuck. There's another situation in the fight where the same thing happened, but in that situation, he was able to cover up and get out of there eventually. But he never adjusted to that throughout the fight. He never tried to get outside leverage with the feet. Never did that, and his trainer never said anything about it either. So after that, Ryan pops right back up after the knockdown. So it was just a flash knockdown. Wasn't anything, no real damage done. And then, in the following rounds, you can see Javante Davis really kind of taking control. Even with Ryan being at range, he wasn't able to really connect in a great way. He had a couple moments here and there. Good right hand. Throughout the, you know... The process of the fight. And that was one thing that he should have did more of. Was throw the lead right hand. Because Javante Davis was waiting on the left hook. That's Ryan Garcia's best punch. He was waiting on that left hook. And you could tell that Ryan Garcia really wanted to land that. Which he should have used the threat of the left hook. To set up other punches. Maybe a right uppercut. Right hook to the body. Something like that. Because Javante Davis was so cognizant of... The left hook. So as the fight goes on, we get into the seventh round, and Ryan Garcia gets caught with a left hook to the body. You don't see it right away, or I didn't see it right away, but you hear it. You hear the boom. You hear it. And then as he's backing up, you see his face, and you see him make this grimace like, ugh, like that really hurt. And he's backing up, and he's like throwing a little paw and jab, just trying to buy time. And after a couple steps, has to kneel down because the body shot hurt that much. Now, I thought he was going to get up. I thought he was just taking an eight count, you know, was going to get his breath back, get his wind back, and get up. But he didn't get up. I was, shock I was shocked by that, right? Not, you know, questioning his heart or anything like that. But I feel like he really, in that moment, realized... If I get up and get back out there, my body's going to be exposed even more and it's going to hurt even more. 
Um, he seemed fine after the fight, so I don't think he broke anything. I just think at that moment, he couldn't go on. Like, he couldn't get up. His body shut down. And that's what happens when you get hit with that type of shot, right? Anybody who's played any type of sports, we've had our wind knocked out before, right? Like, I played football, basketball. I had, you know, caught an elbow in the midsection, had my wind knocked out. And it doesn't feel too good. Your body shuts down. That's what happened to Ryan Garcia. And it talks to the power of Tank. Because that wasn't even... The punch that he threw, it wasn't like he winded up. Like, he threw the the punch that he knocked out or knocked down Ryan Garcia with in the second round. He threw it more force than the punch that knocked him out in the seventh. Because you saw it. Like, on the replay of the knockdown, you saw Ryan Garcia threw that left hook and miss. Javante in his face, you can see like, oh, I got him. And he put force into it. You can see him really bite down and throw that punch. With the punch in the seventh round, it was in the middle of the exchange. And it just, he saw opening and landed it. But it didn't seem like he put that much into it. Even though you heard the sound of it, it didn't seem like he put that much into it. And it just shows you the just crazy power that Javante Davis has. And his talent is crazy. You saw everything in this fight. You saw him fight on the inside. You saw him bait Ryan in. You saw him adjust. He definitely has a total package, which has made me frustrated with Tank in the past because I believe he's one of the best in the world. But his opponent selection hasn't been that. So hopefully from this point forward, he can't really go back now. Right? He can't go back to, oh, I'm going to fight somebody who doesn't really matter. He can't fight anymore Raleigh Romero's. Right? He has to go from Ryan Garcia on up. So for him, his next fight should be trying to challenge the winner of Devin Haney versus Vasil Lamachenko at 135. If that's his weight of choice. Now, I believe that would be his weight of choice because if he goes up to 140, that would be a bad look if he goes up to 140 after making Ryan Garcia come down for their fight. But I think he'll stay at 135. And I understand that for him, the belts don't matter. But Devin Haney is the guy who can say, I'm the best. You beat Ryan Garcia, cool. But I'm the best. You sell tickets, cool. But I'm the best. Now, I wonder if that matters to Javante to beat a Devin Haney. Or if it's a Lomachenko, depending on who wins that fight. I'm leaning Devin Haney. But of course, I'll do a more detailed preview when that fight comes around. But as far as the impact of this fight, I love that it happened. I love that it was successful. And I just can't wait to see more fights like this happen. Our next pay-per-view bout in boxing is Canelo on May 6th taking on John Ryder. I'm not going to pay for that one. I might go to a sports bar and watch it. But that one's not worth my $75. I was willing to pay for this fight because it was worth it. Now, I did the zone. I'm already subscribed to the zone. So I got it for $60 instead of $85. But I was willing to buy that fight because this is the type of fight that boxing fans are willing to pay for. Canelo John Ryder, I want to see it just to make sure nothing crazy happens because boxing, anything can happen. But I'm not willing to pay the full price for that one. I'm going to go ahead and go to a sports bar and just deal with the people around me and maybe get something to eat, a drink or two, and watch that fight. But... Make sure, if you're a true boxing fan, that you're watching these fights the right way so that we can get more fights like this. Hopefully, this truly did do well as far as pay-per-view buys and wasn't streamed too much. And we're able to get more fights like this. I would love it. Um, as far as what's next for Ryan Garcia, he was already at 140, came down just for this fight. So I see him going back up to 140. He should take on a top 10 guy at 140 to try to establish himself as a championship contender. So maybe someone like a Jose Zepeda, uh, Jack Catterall is out there waiting for an opponent because he was just pretty much stood up by Josh Taylor. Um, you also have like Sandra Martin, Arnold Boboza Jr. He has a lot of options at 140 uh, to take on. So he should take on a top 10 guy at 140 to try to establish himself there and see if he can go forward. Uh, what he has to learn from this fight, he can't be that overzealous against good opponents. He can't. Because not only will Tank knock him out, but other opponents, especially at 140, if he moves up and he fights against a Regis Progray or a Josh Taylor 
or Tafima Lopez, if he has those moments where he is over-aggressive against those guys, they will knock him out as well. Uh, so Ryan has to learn from that. But he did show a lot in this fight as far as his hand speed, the talent he does have. But against southpaws, especially the good ones, you can't just ignore the footwork part of it. You have to make sure that it's part of what your game plan is. But he will learn from this. He's still young, 24 years old. And he took a loss. It's not the end of the world. For you boxers out there, if you take a loss, it's not the end of the world. Ryan Garcia is still going to go on to have a very successful career. Very successful. With a loss, it's fine. It's not the end of everything. He'll be okay. So I'm glad this happened, man. So we're going to take our next music break. When we come back, got to talk some basketball. The playoffs have been crazy. Let's talk about it out of the back end of this break.
Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So now we're back. Let's talk some NBA playoffs. Just going to touch on each series real quick. Let's start in the Eastern Conference. So Philadelphia swept Brooklyn, got them out of here. Uh, just to touch on that real quick, I thought that Philadelphia's performance really showed a maturity about them. Right, and I understand when I said you might say, didn't we see Joel and B try to kick some dude when he's on the ground? I'm not talking about that part of it. When I say maturity, I'm talking about the fact that they were the team that got the sweep, right? And getting the sweep is very hard to do. It's very hard to sweep any NBA team and beat them four straight times. It's hard to do. And they did it to a Nets team that isn't the most talented, right? But they are scrappy. They're going to try hard, and they're well-coached. And they adjusted to whatever the Nets were doing in a great way. And what I saw in game one, when they were moving that ball around, taking advantage of the double teams, and doing the things that they were doing, I was like, oh, okay. They came ready. Like, this isn't them playing around. They're ready to make a title run. Now, Joel Embiid missed game four. Hopefully this extra time that he gets off before round two gets them ready because they will play the winner of Boston Atlanta, which most likely will be Boston. I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So by the time you hear this, Boston will probably have closed that series out. And Joel Embiid has to be healthy. At least, you know, 80%. He has to be able to go and do what Joel Embiid does for Philly to have a chance. Now, James Harden had his moments where he looked good in this series. Was definitely able to make the three. Wasn't great driving to the rim. A shout out to my guy Justin Lee from the Above the Rim podcast. He pointed out how James Harden was 7 for 30 in attempts at the rim. Like, that's horrible. you got to be better than that. And it's going to be even tougher next round dealing with Al Horford and Robert Williams, Time Lord, there in the paint. And also dealing with Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. Malcolm Brogdon, Derek White, Marcus Smart, like these all good defenders for the Boston Celtics. So it's going to be tough on James Harden for sure. So you need Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris. Both of them were very good against the Nets. You need them to be great against Boston, especially if Joel Embiid isn't able to be his full self. But I love what I saw from Philly in that series. For the next Eastern matchup, let's just touch on Boston Atlanta real quick. Uh, Atlanta pulled out a game, but it's just one of those, it's hard to beat a team four straight times, so you got one in game three. I expect Boston to go ahead and close the series out in five, and they're just the way better team. Uh, for Atlanta, they have to really look at themselves in a real way in this offseason and decide if they should move forward with Trey Young or they should try to trade Trey Young and get as much back as they can to try to maybe build around DeJounte Murray in that way. You just have to see because what they have right now just isn't good enough. This core has reached its ceiling. There's no need to try to keep it up for too long, right? We've seen other teams do that. Like Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum were great together, but they were together too long, probably two years too long. And once they got separated, you saw C.J. McCollum kind of thrive a little bit with New Orleans, even though that's his own story with Zion and everything. He was able to thrive because he was in a different situation with a, you know, a wing like Brandon Ingram. And when Zion does play a special guy like that, and Dane now is in a situation where he hopefully you get Portland to do a fast rebuild and get talent around him. But you can't just stick with... Trey Young because you're like, oh, well, we'll be decent. We know what Trey Young will be a 7 or 8 seed every year. We'll be in playoff contention. If you want to be in true championship contention, the time to make a change is now. After you guys lose game 5, which I expect. If they win game 5, okay. Whatever, but I expect them to lose. For the next series in the Eastern Conference, got to talk about the Knicks in Cleveland. I was dead wrong. I was dead wrong about this series. My apologies to the New York Knicks. My apologies to Jalen Brunson. My apologies to Josh Hart. My apologies to 
uh, New York pizza. Like everybody in New York, my apologies. I was wrong. And the thing is, the Knicks offensively aren't playing well and still winning. Julius Randle isn't playing well. Emmanuel Quickly isn't playing well. But Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, Mitchell Robinson and company are really doing a great job of shutting down Cleveland. And Jalen Brunson is giving it to Cleveland every chance he gets. Anytime he gets a mismatch, he's taking it. Donovan Mitchell's on me, I'm taking it. Okoro, he's a good defender, but I'm taking it. Osmond, barbecue chicken alert. I'm going there and I'm taking it, right? Uh, so for me, the Knicks, man, have really shocked me. Cleveland, I'm really surprised by how poor they've played. The inconsistency with Darius Garland, he's shown moments where he's been awesome. Like the third quarter of game four, he was amazing in the third quarter. He needed to be because Donovan Mitchell was a no-show, but he needs to be more consistent. I feel like the offense should run through him more consistently. Um, with Donovan Mitchell, if he's not scoring at a great pace, you could tell that it affects the rest of his game. And he needs to be able to not just be a guy who affects the game through scoring, through everything. Evan Mobley has to do more offensively. You can't have him giving you 10 points a game. He has to do more than that offensively. For the rest of that squad, they have to find a true number three as far as their small forward position. Curl's been okay, but you know his shot can be very on and off. With Lavert, he's been good from you know his times in. Osmond's been okay when he's making shots, but defensively he's barbecue chicken. Um, it's something that you just have to really look at Cleveland and be like, what needs to change? Is it the coach? who I thought did a good job this year. When I look at a team being number one in defense all season, I credit that to coaching. And you have to give some credit to Davey Bickerstaff on that. Now, when it comes to the playoffs, he's been out coached by Tom Thibodeau, but Tom Thibodeau is a veteran coach who's been around for a while. That's not unexpected. When it comes to this team, what can change, right? You wonder how much you can get for Jared Allen. Right, maybe you go to a smaller lineup with Evan Mobley at center, or you get a different type of center, and you have to. This off season should be that season where Evan Mobley takes that jump offensively, because he was compared to Kevin Garnett coming out right, and Kevin Garnett wasn't a guy who his first instinct was to score. It wasn't that, but he could though, right? We saw it in Minnesota years when he was number one option, he can get you twenty five points a game, and in the Boston years. He can still score when needed. With Mobley, you question if he can score when needed. So with Cleveland, you really just have to shake your head and be like, good season, but disappointing playoffs. Maybe they can pull something out, you know, in game five and make it interesting. But hats off to New York Knicks. I was wrong. For the last series in the Eastern Conference, we got the Milwaukee Bucks down 3-1 to the Miami Heat. This has been a very weird series because of all the injuries. Giannis missed two games. Tyler Hero broke his hand. Jimmy Butler's been dealing with injuries, but obviously he's okay because he dropped 56 last night. Yes, 56 points. A masterful performance. And not only did he drop 56, but he dropped points whenever they needed him. Because even though he was great, this definitely was a choke job by the Bucks. Just <laughs> chicken bones in the throat. Choke job by the Bucks. How do you let a 13-0 run happen in the fourth quarter like that? And not call a timeout, not have a response. Now credit to them, once the 13-0 run happened, Giannis made a big shot, Drew made a big shot, but then Miami just kept coming and won the game. And now Milwaukee has to win three straight. Now Milwaukee, I believe, is the better team. Right, because you needed 56 from Jimmy Butler to win. Let's not forget that. So the chances of you getting another 56-point game are very low. So I'm still sticking with my, my pick of Milwaukee, but man, am I scared that now Miami can win this series because you only got to win more, you know, one more. That's it. And you have to give all the credit in the world to Jimmy Butler. Their other shooters have really stepped up. Duncan Robinson, who has been on the bench all year, stepped up. Vincent has stepped up. Struess has stepped up. Kyle Lowry has stepped up. Bam has stepped up. Like, their entire team has stepped up. While Milwaukee seems to be 
caught off guard by the fact that an uh, 8 seed is playing them like this. In effect, even with Giannis hurt, they're able to win one of those games. So I feel like you can't really just blame the Giannis injury, especially with game four. Giannis being there, Giannis played well. He didn't seem hindered. He played well. The Bucks choked. And now they have to win three straight to avoid being an 8-1 upset. Man, craziness, craziness. Because now the Bucks, if they lose, you're looking at any team being able to win the Eastern Conference. Boston, Philly, that series becomes so much more important now because the winner of that series is going to be perceived to be the favorite going forward. Because now you have the winner of Knicks-Cavs, which most likely will be the Knicks, taking on the Heat. Maybe we'll get an old-school 90s Knicks-Heat matchup. That would be lovely. It would be crazy, but it would be lovely. So now let's go to the Western Conference. Uh, let's talk about the 1-8 matchup first. We have the Denver Nuggets up 3-1 against the Minnesota Timberwolves. I believe that game is also tonight, so that could be over by the time you hear this. Minnesota put themselves in a horrible position with the Rudy Gobert trade. And I wonder how many people had to sign off on this for it to happen. Was it just one person that was like, I'm getting Rudy Gobert no matter what it takes? Or was this a team, an organizational decision? Because there's no way, and I mean no way, that this should have made sense to more than one person to give up four players and essentially five picks if I remember correctly for Rudy Gobert who at his best is a great shot blocker but you're talking about a guy who's at 7'2", 7'3", getting into his 30s not gonna move as well never was a guy who can guard on the perimeter that Courtney Towns, who in his best day isn't an average defender, who in the biggest moments doesn't show up. In this series, giving you 16 points, 10 rebounds on 43% shooting, 27% from three, from statistically speaking, the best shooting big man of all time. That's good. That's cool. It's a nice little title, nice little slogan. But what does it really mean? What does it give you? If when it comes down to the real moments, you're not going to be able to provide us anything. And I'm saying us if I was someone in the Timberwolves organization. If you're not going to be able to come through for us, what does it matter? So you have two guys on max deals and Cat and Rudy who don't play well together. And I don't know if they like each other personally. It could be very cool personally. But I'm talking about as far as their team chemistry on the court. It doesn't mesh because there's two centers. They're both centers. As much as Carney Towns wants to stay on the outside and shoot threes, that's cool. But what are you going to do as far as guarding other power forwards in today's NBA? Nothing. Nada. Just be barbecue chicken. So if I was Timberwolves, you're stuck with Rudy. You made a horrible decision. You're stuck with Rudy. So let's not get stuck any further. Trade Cat. Try to see how much you can get. See if another team will be enamored with the physical ability and the skill that Carney Towns has. See what you can get back. Hopefully you get some back of those draft picks back. Hopefully you get a good player back. You build around Anthony Edwards. And Rudy Gobert is going to be a very expensive guy who can block some shots sometimes. But you're stuck with him. And maybe you go from there. Because you got to pay Anthony Edwards anyway. So you may as well trade away Cat. Try to free up some cap space. And just give that money to Anthony Edwards. Because his payday is going to be coming soon anyway. So take care of him. Because he's the guy. Cat is not. This is year 8 for Cat. And he's still committing bad fouls. Making dumb plays. Being out physical by smaller players. He's just not that dude. As far as Denver, they're doing what they're supposed to do. One seed, beating up on a bad AC. The Clippers and Suns. This series makes me sad because a healthy Clippers team, I think, beats Phoenix. Their depth 
is obviously way better than Phoenix's. Russell Westbrook is giving you throwback performances. Kawhi Leonard in the two games he played was amazing. Paul George, of course, has been hurt since, you know, now for about a month now with that knee injury. So you just wonder, with the Clippers, can they ever get over the hump? But Kawhi is their best player. Can Kawhi, at any point during his the rest of his career, be trusted to be healthy? Unfortunately, now that he's on the other side of 30, the odds are very low of that. Paul George, he's older than Kawhi. The odds are very low of that. So the Clippers, they have a great team. I feel like healthy, they have a championship level squad. But will they ever be healthy? The Suns have not been truly impressed with them. Very close games. The Clippers have fought. So you had to give the Clippers credit for that. But the Suns have been in some battles in this series. They've been winning. They're up 3-1. You have to give them respect for that. But it's been not the prettiest. Devin Booker is playing amazing. KD has been KD. And you're still having these battles with a Kawhi-less, Paul George-less Clippers. So now you have to question if they're truly ready for a team like Denver next round. That's going to be a, a big, big, big question going into that series for sure. For the third matchup, we got Memphis and the Lakers. The Lakers are up 3-1 in that series. That was my pick going in, Lakers in six. I just felt like the matchup was bad for Memphis, and that's what we've seen. They have no answer for Anthony Davis. Who, Anthony Davis hasn't even played well in all the games. He's been very up and down. Like uh, Charles Barkley said that he's been very up and down for a player of his caliber. It's kind of weird. But Andy Davis has been very up and down. And the Lakers are still finding ways to win. No matter it's D'Angelo Russell making three straight threes in the fourth quarter. LeBron coming through in big moments. Austin Reeves coming through in big moments. They have players who are going to come through outside of Anthony Davis, even though Davis is the big mismatch. For the Grizzlies, to be a two-seed, understand they're missing Steven Adams and Brandon Clark. But those are role players. Big roles, but role players. Your guys, your star players, your John Morant, even though he did miss a game in the series. See, I know he's dealing with a hand injury, but he's still been able to be effective. Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr. Your big three are there. And for you to begin thoroughly outplayed, especially game three, you just got mollywhopped. Makes you really question what's going on with this team. And this year has been weird because last year they were the team that everybody was loving and it was like, okay, this young up-and-coming team that's brash with confidence, we love it. And it seems like that confidence crossed the line into arrogance this year as Dylan Brooks is doing all the talking, John Moran's doing interviews saying he's good in the West. And it crossed into a lane where they no longer were likable. And even in an anonymous survey with players, players is like, we don't like them, they're front runners. They don't play the right way. And now we're seeing them on the brink of elimination in the first round. Now, it's a tough matchup against the Lakers. But we can't just point to Steven Adams and Brandon Clark and be like, man, if they had those guys, it would be so much better. Because Anthony Davis could still score on Steven Adams. Now, maybe he doesn't get as many rebounds, but he still can score buckets. He can still score on Brandon Clark. So let's not act like Steven Adams is the next coming of whoever you want to think of as center. Like, he's not that guy. He's good. Very good player you want on your team. But he's not somebody who you point to if he's injured, your team's going to go down the drain. That shouldn't be it. So there's something else going on with Memphis. And I feel like they're just lacking leadership. And no one on their team is over 30 years old. Steven Adams is the oldest guy at 29. And I think that lack of veteran leadership is showing... It's ugly head now. Dylan Brooks poking the bear and then <laughs> obviously not getting out of the way of the bear as LeBron has played very well since then. A lot of talking, a lot of yip-yapping and not getting the results you want from the Grizzlies. So I think the Lakers will go ahead and close out that series in five or six. For the last matchup, the most exciting matchup of the first round, Sacramento, Golden State. 
great series. Great series so far. I feel like Sacramento is the better team. If they could avoid the young mistakes. In game four, towards the end, you saw some young mistakes from them. Uh, you had a possession with like 50 seconds left where Malik Monk, instead of taking his time and getting a good shot, rushes and tries to go over both Klay Thompson and Draymond Green. You had the last possession where, honestly, I feel like Mike Brown shouldn't have called a timeout. He should have just let them go. Once they got the rebound with 10 seconds left, just let De'Aaron Fox go and head downhill at that point. And he called a timeout. And for what? They didn't really get anything good out of it. You got De'Aaron Fox with a lack of urgency coming down and being forced to pass at the last second to Harrison Barnes, who hadn't shot the ball well that night. So just young mistakes have kept Golden State in this series. And now De'Aaron Fox is playing with a hurt finger. So hopefully it doesn't affect him too much because we've had way too many injuries in the playoffs so far. But if he still can play and like himself, my original pick for this series was Golden State in seven, which is very, very viable and on the table. But I love what I've seen from Sacramento, and I think they are capable of going into Golden State and winning. So I'm going to change my pick to Sacramento in six because I think they're the better team. So that was my touch on each and every playoff series. Of course, once the second round starts, I'll give you an in-depth preview of the second round series. But hopefully you enjoyed today's episode. Got some football, got some basketball, got some boxing. Showing you the complete package, all right? And if you're listening to this on Wednesday morning, don't forget, Wednesday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, me, Nikki Jess, George Teague, Mock Draft on the Giants Rush YouTube channel. Go ahead, check it out. If you follow me on social media at The Real Deal, WDA, I'll definitely post it on there very early. You'll get the link to the YouTube. Please join us. Give us your thoughts. And I got some crazy things about my mock draft. We got a scoring system to see who does the best and everything else. So it'll be a very exciting episode. So please join us. And remember to share this podcast with your friends, your family, the people you don't like, everybody. I would truly appreciate it. And until next time, go real. I'll go home.